0: So it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Romans. We were together last week, but we were doing the service project together. So in the interest of kind of jogging our memories, a quick little um, review of where we are. So Romans is in three sections, as we've been saying all along, the what is grace, how it's revealed to us through Jesus. Um, And it reminds us that we're subject to God's judgment and his wrath. Um, but that because of Christ's sacrifice for us, we're credited with Jesus's righteousness, um, and we are made right with God through our faith. And then we walk through the second part of Romans where Paul shows us how the grace that's revealed to us through Jesus changes who we are. We were, we're dead to sin and free from its power. We are controlled by the Spirit. We are adopted into God's family. We are heirs with Christ Um, and many more things and that brought us all the way through to Romans chapter 11 which ends with this beautiful doxology in the new living translation it reads um, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory all glory to him forever and then we enter the third and final section of Romans which um, Christine helped us start is it three weeks ago now, um, when we did Romans 12, and it begins, um, Paul says to us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in this first verse of Romans 12, Paul is telling us that in light of everything he's told us in his first 11 chapters, grace is revealed in the person of Jesus, and that grace changes who we are, Um, grace now uh, changes how we live. We respond accordingly um, in the way that we are interacting with the world. Um, New City Church has this working definition of worship, and um, they define it as our response to God's revelation. And there in that first verse of Romans 12, Paul is telling us that our response to God's grace revealed to us is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And then in 12, the rest of 12, and then Lisa walked us through 13 two weeks ago, that um, we see that walking through life as a living sacrifice fundamentally changes how we live in relationship with those around us, with other believers with our enemies, with society as at large, how we um, live in relationship in a, as a citizen of the society that we live in. And it can all be summed up in this one command to love one another. So now we turn to Romans 14. And in Romans 14, Paul is offering us a practical, real-life example of how this command to love one another should play out, especially in the church among a body of believers and I and I know we keep reminding you of this and we're gonna sound like a broken record but I'm gonna do it again context matters when we are reading scripture um, understanding who the author is talking to and what is happening at the particular time that it was written really informs how we are reading the scripture. So, pop quiz time. You didn't think you'd have to get going so early this morning, but you do. Um, who's Paul talking to? Right, the church in Rome. In Rome, who is that church made up of? Right, and what can we infer by understanding that Jews and Gentiles are in church together? There are a lot of differences, right? And that's what's being addressed here in Romans 14. Um, We see, actually, that he's addressing a particular— Paul's addressing a particular um, uh, source of disagreement. Um, We see that it's particularly around the issue of eating, what to eat and what not to eat. Um, That shows up in—he's referencing that in verses 2 through 3 and then 14 through 23— Um, But we also see that there might be some um, observance of holy days in there, too. We see that mentioned in verses 5 and 6. So today in Romans 14, we're going to talk through what Paul's saying, why it's important to us, um, and what we can take away from this chapter and how it applies to how this, like, addressing this very specific situation can apply to us today. Um, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. I'm not going to walk us, like beginning to end. We're actually going to go beginning to end a couple of times and find find some themes here. Um, So hang with me. Grab your Bibles. Look at them while we're talking together. Um, I think that this will be worth it. So let's do this. Um, What's Paul saying? I think that the crux of Romans 14 can be found in two verses. Um, Romans 14, verse 1. And today I'm reading out of the ESV. I've typically read out of the NLT, but I like the ESV for this one. Um, Romans 14, verse 1. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then down in verse 19, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And um, the NIV version of this says in um, Romans 14, verse 1, what says quarrel over opinions. Um, he talks about not arguing over disputable matters in the NIV. And then, then in the NIV, verse 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And I, um, I think those two verses really get at the heart of what he's saying here. So let's kind of, now that we've gotten the the 30,000 overview bottom line, let's get into that a little bit. And we're going to start with a couple of definitions because I think some of the words, terms that he's using here can be a little tricky for us. Um, Verse 1 says, as for the one who is weak. We are not talking about someone who doesn't have enough faith, who um, doesn't have enough faith for their salvation or things. We're talking about um, the, in this particular context, what is implied here is that we are talking about um, the one who is weak is the one who has some perhaps spiritual immaturity marked by a lack of understanding of the freedom that we have in Christ. Um, We can view this as, in in our terms today, we might call someone um, being legalistic over particular matters. Um, Tim Keller defines it this way. The weak are any Christians who tend to promote and regard non-essential cultural and ceremonial customs as being critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. So for us today, um, then at this time, in this particular situation, Paul is most likely talking to Jewish believers who um, came from a religion of ceremony and law and custom as part of the means to salvation. So for us today, this might look like a person who grew up in a very rigid legalistic church. And the strong, which is not specifically referenced until chapter 15, but if we are, I think we're to infer that he is talking to the strong. If he's telling us how to um, be in relationship with the weak, the strong is a person who um, rests fully in the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone and feels the freedom to to make their own choice in matters of conscience, indisputable matters so this might look like in our church today someone who didn't grow up in church at all who came to faith later in life um, and doesn't necessarily feel the same um, custom and tradition pressures because they lived a freewheeling young adult life um, and and really kind of are able to rest more fully in being able to make some choices. So, the third definition that we need to know. Disputable matters or matters of opinion if you're reading um, the ESV. What is a disputable matter? A disputable matter is something that is not clearly prohibited or expressly allowed or commanded by Scripture. So, some examples. Do you play hymns on a piano, or do you worship with a full band who writes their own music? Do you get a tattoo or not? Do you dance or not? Do you eat or drink certain things, which is actually referenced here, or not? Do you wear jeans to church or a dress to church? Like, there are many things that are disputable, matters. Um, What we are not talking about is we are not talking about Jesus is the Son of God, salvation by grace through faith alone. Those are indisputable matters. Um, So in the Roman church, um, Paul is offering in Romans 14, he's offering some instructions to, um, we see instructions actually both to the weak and to the strong, and to both of them. So let's cover these instructions um, to the weak. Verse, verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God is welcomed, has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So um, the weak, those who are elevating the importance of, in this particular case, special diets and special days, um, they might have an attitude of condemnation towards their brothers and sisters. A believer who's weak um, may have a tendency, as Tim Keller says, to denounce and warn the strong that they are in grave spiritual danger, that they are displeasing to God and an affront to him. So not necessarily that they have lost their salvation, but are somehow offending God with the choices that they have made. Um, And Paul's instructions to these people are, um, don't pass judgment. Stop. Let's think back to Romans 1 and 2. Paul lists out all of those sins. And then in Romans 2, he says to the believers, Now, before you judge the people who are doing all these sins, take a look at yourself and remember that you're not so different. Um, So he's telling the weak here, Don't judge. Reserve that judgment because it's not yours. It's not yours to um, give. James four twelve says that God is there. That there is only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God. So we should not be, um, we should not be evaluating the state of someone's heart and passing judgment on the state of someone's heart and their relationship with God based on our opinions in a disputable matter. And so that's what Paul's telling the weak believers here, is to stop passing judgment um, in these situations. So um, here's an example of that. What would you think if your pastor showed up on a Sunday morning to preach in his yard work clothes? Ratty jeans, worn out t-shirt, Ball cap. You might wonder a little bit about the fitness of his standing up to preach. But is what you wear to church on a Sunday morning an indisputable matter or a disputable matter? So, um, that's a good place to exercise your restraint in judgment is maybe on a Sunday morning when we see what other people are wearing. And then he gives instructions to the strong. He expounds on his instructions to the strong a little bit more, and I think that's interesting. It seems that Paul believes that the strong have slightly more responsibility in this situation. And he gives them two things to avoid and two things to pursue. So the things to avoid, verse 3, he tells the strong... um, not to despise the weak. And what he means here is don't look up down on someone. Don't treat them with disrespect. Do not treat them as less than. Don't kind of brush them aside and say, well, they just don't, they don't know. So they're not worth my time and effort and energy. And the second thing he says not to do is don't destroy. We see that in verse 15, which tells us... um, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And in verse 20, he says the same thing. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So what is he saying? Do not destroy. Can we really take away someone's faith or salvation Um, And I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think what he's saying here is do not behave in a way that tempts your brothers and your sisters to sin, whether that be sin in their own hearts by their attitude of judgment towards you or sin by um, encouraging them to participate with you in something that they in their hearts and their consciences have decided is not right for them. Um, So, for example... You might think that you can watch the latest chip flick on Netflix. You feel the freedom to do that. It doesn't affect you. Your friend decides, I can't do that. That idealized version of a relationship makes me resent my marriage. You are destroying your sister in Christ when you pressure her to watch that movie with you. When you're encouraging her to sin to resent her marriage, to putting in her position where she might envy something that is not hers. And frankly, it's not real. Um, So, I mean, let's be honest. So so his command here to believers who are strong, who fall in the strong category in any particular situation, um, is that sometimes we need to curb our freedoms. And why is that important? Because if we think back to Romans 13, Paul says love does no wrong to a neighbor. And it is wrong for us to tempt another person to sin. And by tempting your brothers and sisters to sin, by exercising your freedom in disputable matters, is not acting in love. So what do we do instead? Well, first we welcome them. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Why do we welcome them? Well, down in verse 3, we welcome them because God has welcomed them. God, in his grace, has welcomed each of us into relationship with him. And so we take that grace and we pass it on. And the second thing that we're to do is to pursue peace. And we see that in Romans nineteen or 14.19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Um, I like the way the NIV puts it when they say, "Make every effort um, to pursue." What does it say? Hold on, let me find it. Oh well, I like the words "make every effort" because that 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 feels a little stronger to me than pursue unless you've chased a runaway dog, and then pursuing is a lot of work. Um, So make every effort to pursue peace. And what does this mean? Paul says that to pursue peace means, um, if you look down in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Um, the faith that you have keep between yourself and god that sounds contrary to the command to share your faith with everyone and again context matters here what paul is talking about is when you have an opinion on a disputable matter sometimes you might need to keep it to yourself that doesn't mean don't have an opinion that doesn't mean don't share your opinion that means that whenever it becomes an issue of division and contention it might be a good idea to share your opinion and then back off um again we are not talking about indisputable matters there are times when there is division because of an indisputable matter and that's a totally different story that's not what we're talking about here In another letter, in his letter to Ephesians, Paul encourages the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and to do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So what makes a heart more receptive to instruction? Is it um, a brash and belittling attitude? Um... Or is it the humble and gentle attitude of someone acting in love? For those of you who are parents, what makes your child more receptive to um, your encouragement and your correction and your instruction and your um, spurring on in them to their growth? Is it you shouldn't have done that, you should know better? Or is it sitting down, being in relationship with your child, expressing your love and gently and humbly guiding and directing them and i think that applies applies here so let's think about when we are acting in love what does that look like well think back to um well actually forward if you're looking at your bible think forward to 1 corinthians 13 that famous love passage that comes up a lot in weddings um, love is patient love is kind it is not arrogant or rude It doesn't insist on its own way. So when we're acting in love to our fellow believers, we are patient and we are kind. We are not arrogant about our opinions. We are not rude in the way that we discuss our opinions or treat one another when we um, are having conversations about them. And we don't insist on our own way. Again, in disputable matters, we can have some disagreement. Um, I think it's important to remember that no, uh, 1 Corinthians eight one in the New Living Translation tells us that knowledge, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. So having an understanding of our freedom in Christ might make us feel important, might make us feel good, might make us—might in- give us— um, tempt us to feel arrogant and prideful about where we stand um, but that's not what builds up the body of christ treating each other with love does so back to our sunday best example and our and our and our pastor who shows up in his long clothes is it possible that show while he is free to preach in his long clothes if he wants is it possible that that might cause some of his congregation to sin? To judge him, to be angry with him, to um, question him, maybe to not be willing to submit to church authority because of that? Yeah, it might. So, though he is free to wear his long clothes to preach, he curbs that freedom and dresses a little more presentably. Puts on some nice slacks or a sweatshirt or a polo or something. So, again, an example of where it is a disputable matter. um, What you, although some of you might, we might agree that you probably shouldn't wear your lawn clothes to. um, Actually, look, I'm proving my point. (laughs) Here we go. (sighs) My husband jokingly this morning said, You should go teach in like your workout clothes. And I was like, no, I am not going to do that. And he's like, but you'd be proving your point. And I was like, yes, I would. Okay, so here I am proving my own point, (laughs) and we'll move on from that. Um, So directly after charging believers to love their neighbors, um, Paul is giving a tangible example of what that looks like by addressing some of the divisions that are in the Roman church and encouraging them to make every effort to pursue peace with one another. And this is a charge that you will see Paul make throughout the New Testament, which begs the question, why is this concept of unity so important? Well, it's important for several reasons. One, unity matters to Jesus. If you go back into John um, chapter 17, Jesus is praying his, what's called the high priestly prayer, after his final discourse. And he prays um, in verse 23. um, He prays in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity. Jesus wanted us as a body of believers to be unified. Why? Well, he goes on to give the answer. He, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So unity among the believers makes Jesus and his love known to others and brings glory and honor to the Father. So that's reason one. Unity matters because it matters to Jesus. And two, unity matters because it's beneficial to believers on both an individual and a collective level. It strengthens us each individually. We are designed to live in community. Life works best when we are living the way God intended us for us to live. So here's a question for you. Did you know that trees talk to each other? They are connected both um, directly, through roots that make contact with each other, but also through what's called um, the mic let me see if I can say this right the mycorrhizal fungi which grows around the roots of trees and kind of spreads out and connects them to other trees and forms this kind of neural network among the trees. And through this network, trees um, can send nutrients to each other. It is not uncommon for a strong, healthy tree to send nutrients to a weaker one. Um, They communicate warnings to each other. In face of disease and pests, a tree that is under attack will send out chemical warnings to other trees, and then those trees can secrete volatile chemicals that make them unappealing to um, bugs that want to eat them. Um, We can take a lesson from the trees. When we live in community the way that God intended us to live in community, we'll find ourselves benefiting from those who are around us. Um, For the weaker believer, and we will all be the weaker believer at one point, um, we can draw from the wisdom of those who are more mature. We can be supported and encouraged and nourished when we are not as strong. Um, We can be warned when we are facing danger. For the strong believer, we're given the opportunity to grow as we practice Christ-like love. Think about your muscles. How do you build your muscles? How do you get physically stronger? By using them. And then it strengthens the body as a whole and moves us towards the accomplishment of our purpose. Disconnected parts do not work well together. Um, I have had family members that have had Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's disease happens when um, neurons that produce dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, breaks down. And that means that the communication between nerve cells, and also between nerve cells and muscle cells, um, doesn't happen. It breaks down. The brain loses its ability to effectively communicate with the rest of the body. It was very difficult for my family members with Parkinson's to accomplish even basic tasks as their Parkinson's progressed. So lack of love and concern for one another causes disunity in the body of Christ. There is a breakdown, and a body that is not unified does not effectively work, and it ultimately can't accomplish the purpose that has been given to us by Jesus. And then the third reason why unity matters. Unity in the body of Christ brings gospel hope and renewal to the world around us. Psalm 133.1 says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And further down in the chapter, it says that this unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And this imagery of dew falling is often used in the Old Testament to convey flourishing, to convey fruitfulness and productivity. a unified body of Christ is attractive to the world around us. It points us to points others to Jesus and shows them the way to light and life and peace. Think of it this way, a person that is wandering through a dry and desolate desert, someone who is craving a drink of water and sees an oasis off in the desert in the distance, who wouldn't want to long to be in that oasis? When we are a unified body of Christ, we are an oasis to a world that is in the desert. So, what principles can we take from this this case study that Paul gives us and how do we apply them? And I'm going to go quickly here because we're running running short here. Um, One, be fully convinced. Um, In verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Be fully convinced, but practice discernment. Have an opinion. Opinions are okay. We're not saying not to have an opinion. But you need to practice discernment and know whether that opinion is, in fact, an opinion. Is this a disputable matter or is this an indisputable one? And the way we do that is by being grounded in Scripture. Know your Bibles. Know what God says. Know what he's calling us to Know what is indisputable and what is not. Um, and sometimes that still might not be clear to you, so maybe you need to be seeking the wisdom of a wiser and more mature believer. Um, and when you have, um, when you have settled on your opinion, when you are fully convinced, look at verse um, six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And that that same train of thought continues. Um, When you are fully convinced, exercise your freedom or your restraint with hearts and minds that are trusting God. And seeking to honor him in all you do. So the second thing, we're to be fully convinced but to practice discernment. And the second thing is we are to check our hearts. Are you um, judging one another? Are you despising one another as you practice your freedom and your restraint? The third thing, don't major on the minors. Instead, make every effort to live in peace. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're talking about external things versus eternal things. The kingdom of God is not made up of external things. It is made up of the eternal things. So if, and frankly when, you find yourself as the strong one in a particular situation, consider, are you welcoming to others with a different opinion on a disputable matter? Sometimes gentle conversations may be necessary in regards to things of primary importance. But if it's not of primary importance, brothers and sisters, um, and you're you're faced with a brother or a sister who is fully convinced, um, it might be time to be quiet and go on your own way. And in some cases, the most loving thing you can do towards that brother or sister is to refrain from doing the thing that you feel free to do out of love and consideration for another. So, there will be times when we are the strong believer— when we fully rest in God's grace given through Jesus and feel the freedom to make choices that others disagree with in matters of conscience. And when those times come, it is our responsibility to welcome others, to encourage them and support them and build them up to look out not only for our own interests, but their interests as well. And when we do that, we will find ourselves pursuing peace, building unity, and walking in love. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these words to us today. May we let them sink down deep into our hearts and our minds and our souls, and may they overflow out of us onto um, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to sit with these truths this week, um, to search our own hearts where we might not be um, loving those around us whether by judging someone who doesn't struggle with the struggles we have or um, by looking down on someone who does have struggles that we don't have give us grace help us to pass that grace on to those we come into contact with we love you and we are thankful for your son and it's in his name we get to pray today amen